Well, good morning, church. It is uh, the Masters Golf Tournament weekend, and I hope you don't lose any respect for me, but I pay very little attention to it. But I am reminded, though, of, uh, of, of one golfer who had been uh, playing poorly, so he went to see a psychiatrist for some advice to improving his game. The psychiatrist diagnosing his problem, be largely due to stress, told him to relax by playing a round of golf without a ball. Without a ball. Do everything you'd normally do, but use an imaginary ball, advised the psychiatrist. And so the golfer tried that the very next day. He stepped up on the first tee without a ball, and he imagined he got a 260-yard drive, he made a fine approach shot to the green and then putted for a par. And the round was going splendidly well. And as he approached the 18th hole, he met another golfer playing the same way. No ball. And apparently, this man had the same psychiatrist and was following the same advice. And so they decided to play the last hole together and bet $10 on the outcome. Do you see a problem with that somewhere? The first golfer swung at his imaginary ball, and he announced that it had gone 280 yards right down the middle of the fairway. Second golfer imagined his ball doing the same, and he matched the drive 280 yards. The first guy then took out his five iron, and after swinging at his imaginary ball, he exclaimed, well, you look at that shot! It went right over the pin, and the reverse spin on it brought it right back into the hole. Yes! And the second golfer said, don't get too excited. You just hit my ball. <laughs> how, how does he know? Avoiding reality is a fool's game. Both these guys needed a reality check. It was T.S. Eliot who said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. There is a subjective perceived reality and an objective external reality. There are times when we think we have the situation all figured out. That's our perceived reality. But then it goes in a direction we didn't expect, reality, and it often leads to what? Great disappointments. Well, in our passage this morning, there is a perceived reality up against reality itself. And so turn with me, if you're not there, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem on what is traditionally called Palm Sunday. And while there, you know, there are many uh, insights that we can gain from the true account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, you know what? There's also a lot of misunderstanding. We need a reality check as to what's really going on here. All four Gospels record Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. I chose to look at Luke 19, uh, verses 28 through 44 this morning as we ended a True North study last week, and we'll be picking up our belief on the church come in May. But uh, I wanted to switch gears and go on Palm Sunday in a Palm Sunday message that I think I've only done one other time here. 
So here we go. Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And it technically, technically, doesn't mention Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But Jesus approaching Jerusalem. And it should be obvious, obvious that the climax of this account told by Luke is not in Jesus entering Jerusalem, but in his lamenting over the city. And only Luke records that. A confidence in the sovereign plan of God doesn't mean we don't weep over the condition of humanity. That's my takeaway for this morning. It's our takeaway for this morning from our Luke 19 passage. A confidence in the sovereign plan of God doesn't mean we don't weep over the condition of humanity. All right, my first point this morning uh, is God has a plan and he'll take care of the details. God has a plan and he will take care of the details. All right, look with me, Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, and I ask right there, said what? It's always good to ask questions about the passage that you're reading. Well, said what? Well, the, the parable that he just told on the way out of Jericho. The parable that spoke of the king of all humanity and that there are those who accept him as king and others who reject him as king. That really sets the table for what's going to happen here in 28 and following. Well, after Jesus had said this, this parable, he went on ahead. He's ahead of the disciples a little bit, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, I just want us to get our GPS bearings here. Both Bethphage and Bethany are on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And by the way, Mount of Olives is really a series of four hills, not just one. Well, both Bethphage and Bethany are on the east side of Mount Olives, roughly about two miles from the city of Jerusalem. And at this point, they can't see Jerusalem because they're below the top of the hill. You can't see the city of Jerusalem until you peak and you arrive at the summit of Mount Olives. Okay, keep that in mind. We'll be there in a moment. But it's worth noting here that what Jesus is about to do in entering Jerusalem was nothing spontaneous. He wasn't just making this up as he went. This was all well-planned, thought out, right down to the details of getting the animal that Jesus was going to ride in on. All right, listen to the details. End of verse 29, follow along. He sent, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, that sounds a lot like stealing. <laughs> go in, steal the colt for me. All right, maybe he's just gonna borrow it and he'll return it when he's done. You know, kind of like uh, taking someone's car on a joyride and then bringing you back to the owner when you're finished. Folks, that's not what's going on here, right? There's no doubt that what Jesus is doing here has been all prearranged. Jesus tells his disciples what to say if, they, if asked about the cult they were untying and taking. So verse 31, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell them the Lord needs it or the Lord has need of it. And so the disciples, they obey, they follow these instructions, they go into the village, they find the colt that was tied up. And just as suspected, the owners asked them as they would, rightly so, why are you untying the colt? 
Now the Colts, um, it was password protected. <laughs> and Jesus had the password. And so when the Colts owner asked why they were taking this cult, the disciples gave the owner the password. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. That one password set off a series of events for that week. But listen, God is in full control of all that's going on here. He has a plan. He'll take care of the details. I need to hear that. Like, I need to be reminded of it all the time. Because we can live each day with the inner confidence in the sovereign plan of God. That means we really can trust God with the details of our lives. My mind goes to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jot it down, check it out later. It's going to be on your screen here. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What things? All the things we often worry about. That, those things will be given to you as well. But notice here, the matters of the kingdom matter more than the concerns of today. It's safe to say that if our heart is full of worry and anxiety, then we have taken our eyes off of Jesus and his kingdom. As has been said, joy is the flag flying high above the castle of the heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. Is, we sang it. Is Jesus king of your heart? Well, you're trying to do this distance thing with him. Is he king of your heart? And if so, and he's in residence there, then what, what is it that you're finding it difficult to trust him with around the details? All right, second point, a reality check of the expected king. A reality check of the expected king. Well, the colt arrives. I look at verse 35. They brought the colt, the disciples brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it and put Jesus on it. Now, by the way, uh, this is the first time Scripture mentions Jesus riding on any animal. I mean, he might have, but this is the first time it's recorded for us. I mean, we've seen Jesus walk in Scripture on foot. We've seen uh, Jesus use boats. We've seen him walk on water, if necessary. But now, being about two miles away from Jerusalem, he now rides a colt. Why? Why a colt? Is Jesus just tired of, of walking? Well, written over 500 years prior to this event, 500 years prior to this event, we find these words from the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Now get this. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, this is very purposeful action on Jesus' part to show that he is the king spoken of by the prophet Zechariah. He is fulfilling prophecy. And so he comes on a donkey's colt, not to reign, but as a humble servant coming to die. And he purposefully enters when there are thousands, no, no, millions of people around because during the Passover, it was estimated the population would swell to one to two million people. So he was very public. And so Jesus sat on this colt. The donkey didn't come with a saddle, so the cloaks will do. But he sat 
on this unridden, unbroken colt. Now, I don't claim to know a lot about horses and donkeys and colts. But I know, personally, and I know I've shared this with you before, that whenever I have ridden on a horse, I, I either get the most difficult horse around or the horse senses my fear and tends to act up. And I think it's the latter. Because it doesn't matter. I always get the worst one. That's all I really know about the subject of riding on a horse. I'd rather stay off of them. But likely, if you jumped on a horse or a colt, never ridden before, what's going to happen? It's going to buck. I mean, in fear, the colt's going to react. No sense of struggle. The unridden donkey doesn't fight it. There's no kickback. Jesus sat on it. Now, the gospel writers include other true accounts of Jesus calming the raging sea, As I said earlier, he walked on the water in the storm. I mean, time and time again, we see throughout the Gospels that the the, the creator of the universe subdues the creation. We see it here again. Jesus sat on the unridden donkey. All right, now right here, this is where things get really interesting. This is where perceived reality is met by actual reality. Now, I know there's a lot of Palm Sunday messages you've heard, and that's fine. I'm not saying erase all that, but just put it in check with some of what I'm going to say here this morning. It might not fit the box. There's a contrast here between what the people expect and what they will receive, and and this contrast is, is vast. The people, they expect the best. Jesus pronounces the worst. They expect a conquering hero. I mean, you can just see the disciples and knowing he's, he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, that he's the king. He's going in Jerusalem. You can just see the disciples. They're pumping their fists. They're giving each other high fives. They're saying, yes, we're going to go in and knock some heads. Right? That's what they would expect. And this cold thing would be very confusing to the disciples. He should be going in on a war horse, for that's what conquering kings did. And the crowd here, they're pulling out all the stops. There's, there's cloaks and, and there's palm branches that were thrown on the road that goes down the Mount of Olives before it goes up again. And I asked the question, because I've, I've, I've missed it along the way a little bit, what's with these palm branches? What is with these palm branches? A little boy, he was sick on, on Palm Sunday. He was sick on Palm Sunday. He couldn't go to church, so he had to stay home from church with his mother. And after the service, his father um, returned from church and uh, went into the home. He was holding a palm branch. And the little boy was curious, and he asked, Why do you have that palm branch, Dad? Well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, so we got palm branches today. The little boy, taking that very literally, replied, Seriously? The one Sunday I miss is the Sunday Jesus actually shows up? (laughs) He thought he came into town. He was bummed. What's with these palm branches? Well, palm branches, or palms, were used as a national symbol of Israel. Later, Matter of fact, palms would, uh, later than this time, palms would appear as national symbols on the coins 
struck by um, the uh, Judean insurgents during the first and second revolts against Rome in A.D. 70 and then again, and then again in A.D. 135. In this case here, it would have been a symbol, the palms would have been a symbol of patriotic revolt against Rome. Let that sink in, what's going on here. And the disciples, they lead the charge and they get the crowd going and joyfully praising God in their loud voices, verse 38 says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the other gospels tell us that along with reciting Psalm 118:26, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us now. Now at first pass, it appears that the ones gathered understand this Jesus who's entering Jerusalem. Even their cry of Hosanna seems to be the right words. But things are not always what they seem. Church, this is a false crowning of the true king. It's a false crowning of the true king. They are expecting what? National restoration. They are thinking political revolution. The crowd here in welcoming Jesus in this way was crowning him as their political deliverer, the one who would throw off the shackles of Rome. They wanted Jesus to be their king. Like the, like the well-fed crowds in Galilee, after Jesus fed the multitudes, they wanted him to be king after that miracle. Someone said, yeah, they wanted a burger king. Well, he wasn't serving burgers, but you get my point. We want a king like that. A king will feed us all the time. That's the king I want. You have it here. They're expecting that this Jesus was going to deliver them nationally and politically. And so they're ready to crown him king. But the kind of king they wanted was not the kind of king he was. It was not for him to be the Lamb of God. This kind of king didn't come to take away the sin of the world and die in the place of sinners. No, no, it was Hosanna, save us now from our political problems. Save us now from the mess we're in nationally. Deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. Their perceived reality was that Jesus was about to establish his messianic kingdom now. Hosanna! Save us now. That was their cry. That was their expectation. That was the Jesus they wanted. Now have you noticed? Have you noticed that there are many professing Christians today who walk around disappointed with God? Maybe that describes you this morning. You're in here today and you are disappointed with God. Why? God didn't meet your expectations. I thought he saved my marriage. He didn't. <sighs> Forget it. There's so much confusion today about who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do for us. And so we can have all kinds of expectations that we falsely place on the true king. So I ask you the question, who is your Jesus? And is he the Jesus of the Bible? What kind of savior are you seeking? One who's going to fix all your problems, and now? One who's going to heal all your diseases, and now? 
One who's going to deliver you from your difficult circumstances immediately? One, one who will make you happy? Is that the Jesus you're expecting? That's what he should do. He should make me happy? And what happens when Jesus doesn't come through for you the way you think he should? I mean, you can even be enthusiastic and passionate about it, and then he doesn't do what you want him to do. What happens next? Well, forget it, God. Forget it. I was ready to crown you king of my life, but, but if not if that's the way it's going to be. Forget it. I don't want anything to do with you. Is that where you're at today? Listen, he is the true, actual king. That's why they throw their cloaks down and quote from Psalm 118. That would be appropriate for a king. Jesus was the ultimate king who would make everything right. Just not now. That's going to happen when Jesus returns a second time. That's why the gospel, church, must be at the center of our living and learning. It keeps our expectations in check. Because Jesus came to solve the predicament of humanity. He came to give you peace with God because you're at enmity with God because of your sin. He came to deliver you from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin. The conquering king we all long for is found in the person of Jesus. And you and I, we were made for that king. And when he's given rule and authority over our lives, we function as we were designed to be. Made for him. Is Jesus the true king of your life? Listen. He's not the Republican Jesus. He's not the Democrat Jesus. He's not the therapist Jesus. He's not the revolutionary Jesus. He's not the boyfriend Jesus. Or whatever else we try to make him to fit in our expectations. He is the true actual transformational king who comes to save you from yourself your sin from living for temporal stuff to give you meaning and purpose as his values become your values that's something worth living for will you crown him as the true king of your life will you submit to his authority and rule over your life are you trying to squeeze him into your mold of what you want and expect him to be all right, we move from the god on a cult to god in tears third point this morning the tears of a sovereign king the tears of a sovereign king. After a brief confrontation Jesus has with the Pharisees in verse 39, where they're just flipping out because they fear that they're losing popularity to Jesus, we come to a very significant turning point in the narrative. There's a reference there in verse 40. Now I want you to the rocks crying out. Now I want you to stay with me on this. Again, match it up with what you've always, always heard. And see if it, if, it, if it sticks. Research it yourself. But the reference to the rocks crying out ties into what we see of Jesus' emotional response to what is taking place. And what I believe Jesus is getting here about the rocks crying out is that if there isn't an acknowledgement of Jesus as the true, actual, sovereign king, then the rocks are going to cry out in an act of judgment on the people. Because the stones here, as we're going to see in a moment, the stones crying out, I believe, is a reference to the destruction coming to the city of Jerusalem for the rejection of Jesus as the true king. Okay, hang on to that. We'll see that in a second. Because just as these words were spoken, Jesus went to the top of the ridge of the Mount of Olives. 
And when he got to that spot, the top of the ridge of the Mount of Olives, he would have this stunning, spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Only Luke records this. So in contrast to all the noise and celebration, Jesus sees the city, he gets a clear view of the temple, and he weeps. Jesus was expressing profound sorrow while the people are expressing ecstatic joy. Now listen, don't picture Jesus just wiping a single tear from his eye. I think we would have been very uncomfortable around Jesus right here because he weeps. And if you were standing behind him, you would see his body shaking up and down. All who could see him would see his tears, and they must have wondered, what in the world's going on here? Well, Scripture tells us that Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus' passing. We're told in Hebrews 5, 7, check that out for yourself, Hebrews 5, 7, you'll see the verse on the screen, that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And I believe this is referring to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when he felt the full force of Calvary about to fall upon him. Now we see Jesus weeping over the city. Why? Why the tears? Verse 42. Jesus says, if you, even you, of all the people should have known, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. There's so much misunderstanding of Jesus' arrival. Jesus knew in a few days he crucified in that city. He knew what was coming. But not only would he have what he would have to endure, but he knew what was coming for the people of Israel. He knew that they were going to reject him. If they had known, he says, if they had only known. And he weeps. He weeps over the city because of his tremendous love that just fills him. But secondly, he weeps over the city because he knew of the judgment to come upon them. He looks upon them and says in verse 43, follow this now, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. Now get this, go back to stones crying out. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you see it? The stones here that made up the glorious city were going to lie on the ground, and, and the stones would scream and cry out, judgment. And Jesus weeps. Prophetically, Jesus knew what's going to take place 40 years from his death and resurrection in A.D. 70. A judgment would be coming that would level the city and its temple. And Jesus is so overwhelmed with sorrow by the horror that's being played out in his mind's eye. He weeps over the city because of his tremendous love that fills him, but also because of the destruction to come. Palm Sunday is about tears. And I grew up in a generation where dad told their sons, be a man, don't cry. You know, like real men don't cry, just like real men don't eat quiche. 
<laughs> I don't, it kind of fits, but it's a different subject. But some, really, some grew up in homes with an emotionless dad who never cried. And a person who doesn't express emotion is difficult to know. You might have grown up in a home where the rule unspoken or spoken was, oh, no, 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 we don't show emotions here, you know, big girls don't cry sort of thing. Well, you might have, might have grown up in the home and in a Christian community where you had emotions, they can't be trusted. So you learn to stuff those emotions. And we're often, church, we're often numb emotionally. And we can, we can stuff our emotions down when they ought to be expressed. And we can go to the other extreme and overreact emotionally, expressing it in full-blown anger and other things we can. Because so what, often what, what happens, what causes an emotional response are lesser things than things that really matter in life. I can't find my cell phone. <laughs> the sky is falling. <laughs> I left those muffins in the oven too long. They're ruined. Oh no, the world's coming to an end. I've waited way too long for that server to take my order, and I am outraged. We can get so hot and bothered about a lot of things. But church, are they the right things? Have you shed tears for somebody's losses other than your own? Jesus responded emotionally to every situation in an appropriate way. When the situation called for joy, Jesus responded appropriately. When, when the situation's sad, he's appropriately sad. Because Jesus was not a pretend man. He was fully man. We could say that he was more fully human than any of us in this room. If you've ever heard someone say that a Christian should never be sad, don't believe it. To never be sad is to be unlike the Lord Jesus. Jesus called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus saw the city and he wept over it. And I have to believe that if Jesus physically stood at the top of the highest point in Belknap County, which likely is, is Belknap Mountain, I don't know, you can check it out, but if he, Jesus physically stood at the highest point in Belknap County and looked down over this region... He would weep again. He would weep again. And if he were to look down on worshiping congregations, singing away, looking the part on the outside, but Jesus looking into the heart and seeing the reality, he would weep. He would weep. Do you have the heart of Christ? Do I have the heart of Christ? Do I grieve over those who reject Christ and what awaits them? In the early days of Salvation Army, when it was a great missionary force in England, a young man was assigned to a particular city that wasn't, he wasn't seeing any results. And he wrote back to headquarters with a telegram which simply said, I have tried everything, ready to quit. General William Booth, kind of known for a man of two words, he wired him back with two words, try tears. Tears move the heart of God. And I'm not talking about crocodile tears. You know what I mean. Manufactured, tears that are put on, God's not impressed. But a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. And church, I have a long way to go on that. I do. Jesus would cry for his enemies. 
Do we weep for those who hate Christ, who hate Christians? That's the attitude of the king. Jesus knew what the people were about to do to him and crucify him, yet he still sheds tears for them. And some have argued here that Jesus' tears prove that he doesn't know what's to come. His weeping and sorrow is proof uh, to deny his sovereignty. That's just, that's, that's not true. We can go back one chapter in Luke, one chapter in Luke, chapter 18 and verse 31 for insight to what Jesus knew about what was ahead. Luke 18, verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written, planned about the Son of Man, meaning himself, by the prophets will be fulfilled. He, and speaking of himself, will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. None of what's about to happen is any surprise to Jesus. You see, tears of mercy are not at odds with confidence in God's sovereign plan. The sovereign Lord weeps over hard-hearted, perishing Jerusalem as they fulfill his plan. Jesus feels the sorrow of the situation. He is full of mercy. All right, what's the lesson for us? I said it at the outset. A confidence in the sovereign plan of God doesn't mean we don't weep over the condition of humanity. A confidence in the sovereign plan of God doesn't mean we don't weep over the condition of humanity. And even though we can take great comfort in the sovereign plan of God, that should never keep us from being broken over the condition of the lost and the condition of the world. We can have a deep inner confidence and peace that God is in control, but that doesn't mean we don't grieve over all that we see happening in the world. Suffering and evil in the world should break our hearts. It should never be, oh well, God's in control. True, he is. But that doesn't mean we don't weep. That doesn't mean we stop feeling. A pastor, he was called to a church in the inner city after years of serving in a country church. And as he got settled into his office, he looked out the window of his office onto the city streets. And he wept over the city's tragic conditions. And as he was standing there looking out his office window weeping, a longtime member of the church happened to walk in. This member trying to console this new pastor said to him, don't worry, pastor, after you've been here a while, you'll get used to it. The minister replied, yes, I know. That's why I'm crying. The question for us, for me, have we gotten used to it? Honestly, it can be an occupational hazard for me. I'll be honest. Ask God for a heart of mercy. Let's repent of any hardness of our hearts and ask God to give us a heart that is tenderly moved. And not only tenderly moved, but move us to action. Al Shu, he tells of how he had laser surgery, eye surgery, and it didn't seem to take. He says, my vision had been something like 2,400, and the surgeon was able to bring it to 2,040, tantalizingly close to clear vision, but still very fuzzy. He then says, and during a worship service, I squinted to make out the lyrics on the far wall. In one particular uh, song, we were singing, God of justice, and the words go like this, live to feed the hungry, stand beside the broken, we must go, stepping forward, keep us from just singing. Move us into action. We must go. 
He says, I closed my eyes as he repeated the chorus, praying that God would, would direct me. How might I be moved into action? He asked God. And the song cycled back to an earlier verse. He says, when I opened my eyes, the lyrics on the screen shimmered slightly, then came crisply into focus. I could see clearly. Wow. I could read every word easily without squinting. Has God just healed me? He says, I blinked several times and my vision wavered back and forth. Clear, blurry, clear, blurry. <laughs> then I realized what was happening while singing. I'd been tearing up, moved by God's call. And the thin layer of water on my eyeballs functioned like contact lenses. The tears had been making my vision clearer. And he concludes by saying this, I suspect that I'll never see as clearly as I do, but when I have tears in my eyes. Oh, like Jesus, may we be moved in our emotions. Oh, like Jesus, may there be tears on our way toward need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for seeing the, allowing us to see the humanity of Jesus. Not a pretend man, a real man. God, just do what you need to do in us. That we would really break for the things that break your heart. It's a saying and it becomes kind of a cliche. But I pray we would humble ourselves before you and ask God, break us for the things that you're broken up over. It's probably not when I can't find my cell phone. So God, speak to us. May we repent of the hardness and be tenderly moved by you to be like you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.